This is Barbara Glickstein with Health Cetera. Many of us in the beginning of the year and sometimes throughout the year think about our weight and whether or not we'd like to change it, either for most people, I would say, is to try and reduce our body weight. And there are some folks who really struggle with keeping weight on. Today, we're going to talk about um, issues around obesity and excess body weight, which really is an energy imbalance, if not a in some cases, there are genetic and, and uh, illness-related weight gains from medications and, and such. So it's kind of an energy in and an energy out, but it's also not just about treating weight. And we know that it's really about treating the whole person, their environment, their family environment, their environment in terms of where they live, where they work, where they play whether it's safe to do any of those things. So we're going to talk about that with our guests in just a moment. Before I introduce her, I want to just also mention that the treatment of obesity has, it seems, been revolutionized by these new drugs that the FDA have approved. And they work by mimicking a hormone called GLP-1, and that's about regulating appetite regulation. They're not without issues. We're not going to talk about them in extent today, but um, it is something I want to mention early on because the list price of these drugs are about $900 to about $1,300 a month. And adding to that cost, people typically need to take the drugs indefinitely or stop when they've reached the point they have uh, lost the weight they hope to. It's not just about cost, though. People are... Um, being on these drugs indefinitely and side effects. The other thing to mention is that most insurance companies, both commercial as well as we know for sure, Medicare and Medicaid do not reimburse or cover them. And bariatric surgery has been around um, and that has also been transformative. And on a personal note, I want to mention that back in 1985, my first year as a new nurse, I worked at St. Luke's Hospital in New York City, where they were just beginning to really start doing bariatric surgery there. And I was often sent to that unit and saw the patients who were living and struggling with morbid obesity for their life, for their whole lives, some of them. And it really was quite striking, the impact of their hopes and dreams about this. I also have a very dear friend who's a clinical nutritionist in Massachusetts who worked in this field. And I learned a lot from her. I also learned a lot about addressing my bias and my own stigma around obesity. So maybe we'll cover that as well. But first, let me welcome my guest, Dr. Simone Gill. She's an occupational therapist and associate professor and researcher at Boston University School of Medicine and the director of the Motor Development Library. She also holds a PhD in psychology, which I only discovered from looking at her bio. So we're going to talk about that. Um, Her focus is on post-surgical support, one of her focuses, on post-surgical support for people undergoing bariatric surgery. And she's done research on how people control their bodies, both before and after massive weight loss in this area. Welcome to Health Cetera, Dr. Gell. Hi, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And um, I know I'm having you back. We're going to talk more extensively about occupational therapy, but I can't move on without saying part of it, inviting you and wanting to learn more about your research and the translation of that to help people's lives. I'm always blown away by how much 
much occupational therapists do. So thank you for broadening uh, listener audiences understanding and talking today about your research. Please share, how did you become focused in this specific area of research, Dr. Gell? Thanks so much for asking that question. I think that for a lot of researchers, the research that they wind up engaged in is very related to a personal experience. So I actually, many, many years ago, was struggling with obesity myself. I am five foot two. That's my height. And as we know, obesity is often classified according to body mass index or BMI, which is your weight divided by your height squared. And we get this number. And so typically obesity is classified as if that number is above 30. So many years ago, when I was five foot two, I once weighed 225 pounds, which for me was quite a lot. And it isn't only about the, you know, how I felt about my body and image and so on. I also was pre-diabetic and hypertensive. So my body was responding negatively to the added weight. So I'm saying that because I know that for some people, different sizes doesn't necessarily mean that their bodies are unhealthy, right? So for some people, being at a different size is okay. But my body was telling me that it, it wasn't happy being in that place. So I worked hard with diet, exercise, and lost much of that weight. Um, at that time, my BMI was 41, so way above 30. And now I'm like you know, somewhere around 26 BMI or something like that. Um, I always tell people it's a part-time job to you know remain healthy. The reason that I became interested in it was because when I was a graduate student, I was studying how people change their walking patterns based on changing their body. So if you added mass, if you, you know, extended the length of one leg by changing the shoes that they wore. And I thought to myself, after I'd lost the weight, I felt as though I moved differently. And I also noticed that I didn't fall as much, which sounds unusual. So at that time, I was probably somewhere in my 30s. So you wouldn't typically link someone in their 30s with a fall risk. But that is often what actually happens with people who um, are living with obesity, especially if they have other kind of conditions or comorbidities. So as I lost weight and then I took my position at Boston University, I started to search the literature and find out, well, do people living with obesity have trouble with walking? I feel like my walking changed and people say, well, if you'd like to lose weight, you should walk, it's free. You know, you can go outside and do it anytime. And lo and behold, I started to find a few papers suggesting that this might be the case. So I decided to start doing some work in this area. I partnered with um, an MD at Boston Medical Center who was looking at knee osteoarthritis and changes in knee pain and knee structure. So I examined walking of these patients before and after surgery. Now, for most of them, they can lose up to about 30% of their weight in a year. So I tested them before surgery and a year later, and I did find that after surgery, they're able to walk more quickly, um, hesitate less than they walk. So walk without spending a lot of time with both feet on the ground and sort of pick up the pace. I also asked them to cross obstacles, very simple task, and they were able to do that more easily after the surgery, and they actually got better at it as they were doing it. So it suggests that 
practice could be really helpful for these patients. And I think what really struck me about doing this work was the fact that patients are followed quite closely for medical complications after surgery, which they should be. They are involved with nutritionists, psychologists, but they don't receive any kind of rehabilitation that's physical in nature. So occupational therapy, physical therapy, any of those sorts of interventions are not a part of their treatment. And that was startling to me, given that I'm seeing that they have difficulty with their walking. So, I mean, if any of us thinks about things that are challenging for us to do, they're not likely to want to do them more often. So if someone has trouble moving, why would they move more? Which then kind of feeds into the challenge of staying healthy. So patients often, unfortunately, regain weight after bariatric surgery. Um, they really do need the support to be able to stay active and healthy. I also want to add that even though their walking got better after surgery, their walking patterns still were not quite like those of people who have never lived with obesity. So there's still some room to be able to help support them from a rehabilitation standpoint. And thank you. That's really fascinating. And thank you for sharing that personal story. And um, I think it, it's it's always interesting to ask that question and to hear that people, um, many, many people in the field of health and research are motivated by personal experiences and then their clinical and uh, scholarship. And so thank you for sharing that. I hope um, whoever's listening, including our younger listening audience, realize that your passions do drive your profession. I, I, I really do believe that. So Dr. Gill, I know you've mentioned a couple of things and in prepping for today's show, I was struck by, um, the research on falls that you mentioned in people who carry more weight than their body structure, you know, in obesity, that there's an increase of falls and also watching how people walk. It's actually something that I do. I live in New York City. You know, the streets are always filled with people walking. And for my own rehabilitation with a post foot and ankle uh, fracture. I have gone to um, physical therapy. I've been to OT for other issues. And I've learned that some of my own gait needed improvement. And I don't struggle with obesity, but I wasn't walking, rolling my foot or the way that um, I was, my hips were imbalanced. And I've really learned how to improve my gait. And I, I thank goodness that I can walk and that walking is very much a part of my daily work and life. I shouldn't say work, life. So um, it's interesting because one of the guidelines, I looked on the obesity medicine website um, and they were, I looked at the guidelines for people considered uh, as candidates, positive candidates, and they did include a commitment to post-operative dietary and lifestyle changes. And, um, and here your recognition through your research and, and, and your scholarship, noting that many people leave that situation and maybe it's certain populations leave that surgical experience. Not all surgical bariatric surgical sites are in, uh, don't include that, but, um, that sense of body and movement post bariatric that you mentioned, um, speak to what you think would be optimum in uh, post-bariatric surgery. And maybe that even is applied, although your I know your research is about post-bariatric surgery, to people who lose a significant amount of weight with some of these weight, these drugs, or 
changing lifestyle and eating in general, what should they be thinking about? That's an excellent question. I think the thing to think about is how to get supports to be able to do the changes that you want to do lifelong. It is a lifelong kind of commitment, whether someone has had bariatric surgery, whether someone is taking a weight loss drug, or whether they got on to a diet and exercise regime like I did. All of those things require constant support. Um, Your environment matters a whole lot. So if I decide over the holidays that I'm going to have some treats, that's totally fine. But then I need to recognize that for me, if I have a treat near me all the time that I really like, that that might really be detrimental to me, my ability to be you know, healthy. So if I'm surrounded by chocolates or something all of the time, then that can be really challenging. I, in my research, I've partnered with an advocate, a woman who herself had undergone bariatric surgery and she supports clients. She's in North Carolina and she supports clients after surgery. They're part of an unusual program where people are actually followed lifelong. So she has these discussion groups and she told me anecdotally about some experiences that some of the patients were having after surgery. Many of them said, yes, I get lots of information before surgery about how to handle things afterwards, but I'm so focused on the surgery that I can't hear any of that until I have the surgery. And then I'm left with this huge binder of information And I don't know how to apply any of that, right? They're they're sort of like done with the medical portion of the procedure. And then they're just sort of left to their own devices to then figure out how to lead a healthy lifestyle. Some of them don't have the financial resources to keep up with the medication that's required for them to take because they can't absorb the same amount of nutrients after having surgery. And this advocate mentioned that In one of the group meetings, a patient said, well, my doctor thinks that I'm just not being compliant with the medicine, but I actually can't afford the medicine. And I think that she was ashamed to admit to the doctor that she couldn't afford the medicine. So one of the other patients in the group took out a checkbook and wrote her a check for her to be able to buy her medicine. Wow, that's beautiful. That's I mean, so it was wow. so generous and beautiful and also heartbreaking. So it's such a multifaceted kind of situation. And I think that the environment and the supports that people can can kind of put into place for themselves matter a whole lot. If you're living in a house with people who are supporting your healthy eating habits, that's great. But if they're swimming upstream and they have a household of people who are eating fast food, then that's really challenging. And Coming from the history of living that lifestyle and eating those kinds of foods, as you mentioned, for me also, it would be knowing there was chocolate in the cabinet right now. Um, I have my own, um, you know, sweet tooth and issues around eating uh, out of stress. It's interesting what you're also really addressing. And we know that um, in, in and for for reasons that perhaps you would like to discuss um, in the uh, in the black community and in the Hispanic community, there is a significant a higher level um, of people living with issues of obesity. Again, not all of them unable to be athletically active and fit. Um, it's not that you look at a person and know everything about them when there's a weight issue or they don't see it as a weight issue. It isn't a weight issue for them, right? Um, 
So what do providers sometimes not take into account? What are the pieces that should be addressed and not just handing a binder over that doesn't, that isn't taking into account finances, home environment, perhaps no sidewalks or safe streets to walk on? What are some of the things that you take into account when talking um, with patients on this issue? I think from an occupational therapy standpoint, we do focus on motor function and movement, but another big piece of occupational therapy that cuts across conditions and ages has to do with what are people's habits and routines? Asking people, what does a typical day look like for you? That gives me a lot of information about what resources does the person have or not have? Who's in their environment? What environment are they living in? Um, are they going to have supports before or after surgery? I think those are really critical things. So um, I don't fault my physician colleagues because they do have lots of patients to see. They have to do that very quickly. So when you're in that circumstance, I think you're looking for solutions that fit the most, most of the people that you're going to see. And looking for individual differences is challenging because it takes more time. But I think that that's where you find out more information from clients and then figure out how to best help their individual needs. So if someone doesn't have sidewalks in their neighborhood or they don't feel like it's safe for them to move around, could they go on YouTube and find, you know, like free exercise videos? And those those are abounding now online for people to be able to be active in their living room. You know, is there something that might help? There was a, a study published years ago um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was a big study actually with adults, not related to bariatric surgery, but looking at decreasing fall risk. And um, the physicians did, you know, tell people to go to your local center and exercise and so on. But they did recognize in in the end, um, the findings suggested that, well, nothing worked to decrease fall risk. However, the authors did concede at the end of the article that they didn't check adherence. They didn't look at where people went to exercise, what was the content of what it is that they did. I mean, all of those things really matter. So maybe some people didn't go at all. Maybe um, someone went to the Y and, you know, did a high intensity interval class, but maybe someone else kind of, you know, just walked around in a neighborhood. I'm not saying either of those is a bad thing, but we are seeing in the literature that there are different kinds of exercise where people can sort of get more bang for their buck, so to speak, when yes. doing that activity. And so if we don't know anything about people's daily lives, what they're accessing, who they're with, then we can't, we can't kind of provide the best individual kind of need for, for people as we can. One of the things I read um, in an article, um, would, would, would using the word activity be better than saying exercise? And isn't a goal to really get all of us, people post-bariatric surgery, and all of us spending too much of our time just sitting and not moving, um, isn't that the goal? Isn't that a big goal? And some, it, it, I know it's semantic saying what we're going to do is put you on an activity program when people hear, oh, they mean exercise. So I'm not sure changing words always work, but do you think it works? I think that it would absolutely work. And the big reason that I think that it would work is because 
literature is now suggesting that, yes, we do need sort of like what we think of as exercise, high intensity activity, moderate to vigorous physical activity, but we also need the 10,000 steps per day. So people who are doing vigorous activity, exercise for 30 minutes a day, and then sitting in their chair for the rest of the day are not faring very well. You need both things. So you need to get up and walk down the road to mail a letter in the mailbox. You need to walk and buy yourself a gallon of milk or whatever. Um, all of those things together lead to a healthier lifestyle. And I think we're seeing, um, I bought this cookbook last year about the blue zones and um, healthy eating in different parts of the world. So this chef wrote a book about different areas of the world where people were living into their, the, you know, to, in their 90s and 100. And he's looking at the fact that not only are they doing things that are not surprising to us, eating more vegetables, less meat and so on, they move a lot yeah. and they live in communities surrounded by friends. They're walking to a friend's house. They're walking and, you know, sort of like weeding their garden. So I think that activity would matter a lot. And again, this is about back to habits and routines. What are you doing in your everyday life that is linked to longevity and linked to healthcare? Um, I think also too, something else that needs to be explored are the reasons that people who would benefit from bariatric surgery are not undergoing surgery. And in my lab, we actually published a paper, I have to say now last year, 2023, where we examined just that. So we conducted a survey of over 4,000 people who, um, and then asked why they decided not to undergo bariatric surgery. About a quarter of them say it's because they're afraid, they're fearful. What does it mean? What's their, you know, life going to be like afterwards? I remember talking to a patient who was doing my walking study and she said, oh, I'm really worried. My surgery is going to be like around Thanksgiving. I'm hosting my family, I'm not going to be able to eat the same things that I typically would have. And that's a real challenge. Another quarter, we're worried about cost. So for some people, it's really tough and they can't afford to have bariatric surgery. So I think we also need to explore what is it that's keeping people from accessing something that might be beneficial for them. Those are very, very good points. We just have a moment left and I wanna let you have the takeaway last comment. Um, we've covered a, a good amount of information that I always like to remind myself <laughs> and our listeners, information is not enough. Behavioral change requires, as you've repeated, um, Dr. Gell, a supportive environment, opportunities to discuss your fears, your motivational strategies. It's not just having the printout of what you should be doing. And um, I appreciate hearing it again and again from people like you, Dr. Gill, who have committed their, their professional work in this space, looking at the barriers, um, looking at the issues of finance, um, access to health care, community safety, support by the people who know and love us to see our changes, right? And to live with those changes. So what would you like to say in, our fin in your final comment to our uh, listening audience? I think in the end, really what we need to do is surround ourselves with supportive, positive people who are going to help us to reach our goals 
and uh, to take a walk with them while you talk about what those goals are <laughs> a little more in your environment. That's perfect. Uh, Dr. Simone Gill is an occupational therapist and researcher. She's an associate professor at Boston University School of Medicine and the director of the Motor Development Laboratory. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you.